Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, early humans depended on mythology to understand themselves, other beings, and the world. As we've evolved, most of us have lost touch with the deeper meaning of myth. In the modern world, myth is used to say, oh, it's just a myth, which means something false. But the root meaning of myth is emergent truth. So a myth is a series of lies that tells the truth. Mythologist Michael Mead is still in touch with the stories, songs, and poetry that made us human. In this talk, Touching the Soul of the World, he explores what stories and myths tell us about modern life. Mead's latest book is The Genius Myth. He spoke at Vashon Island's Open Space for Arts and Community on March 29th. All right, thanks for coming out. I think the title is Touching the Soul of the World. And so it's like a big idea thing. And so I want to lay out a series of big ideas, mostly mythic ideas. So in the modern world, myth is used to say, oh, it's just a myth, which means something false. But the root meaning of myth, besides story, is emergent truth. So a myth is a series of lies that tells the truth, right? The current administration is a series of attempts at truth that turn out to be lies. At least that's the way it looks to me. Um, I'm going to try and keep my political comments in check tonight. Why? <laughs> well, I've gotten in trouble in other places. Uh, all right, well anyway, we'll see how it goes. But the idea is to take a look at some of these big issues from the point of view of, of myth and imagination. So imagination is called the deepest power of the human soul. Human soul has lots of powers, but imagination is the deepest root of humanity. Humans are the people who imagine everything, for instance, um, the smallest tribe on the Amazon River, there's a tribe there of only 30 some odd people, and they have a cosmology that explains the entire world, all the planets, all of nature and everything. Humans are the only cosmologists and we may be the only mythologists. And again, if you think of myth as the deeper story and the only way to tell the truth, I don't know if you got that memo, the facts can never tell the truth. That's why everybody argues about them. The facts can only tell part of the truth and then underneath the surface where the facts and your figures tend to hang out are the deeper truths, um, the truths of the soul, the truths, truths of the heart. And what's, part of what's happening in the modern world is we have people trying to solve everything through the facts. And what happens, and then unfortunately, instead of imagination, you now have ideologies. I don't know if you got that definition. Uh, you pick up an ide ideology when you've lost your imagination. And that's fine. I mean, it, it may be okay. The problem I have with ideologies, if a person takes seriously an ideology and replaces their imagination with it, it makes it easier for them to reject, exile, deport, defame, and diminish other people. You get what I'm saying? 
because the ideology replaces the deeper thing, which is the feeling of the heart and the soul, the compassion, which are the deeper aspects of humanity and what people are supposed to be growing in a bigger fashion as they get older. You get you know what I'm saying? In other words, when people get older, they're supposed to get wiser and deeper and therefore more compassionate. And when you have people who have reached a certain age and they're handling power and they haven't gotten older or wiser, everyone suffers. The other problem that happens is everyone suffers greater anxiety. So I don't know if you've experienced that. <laughs> so one of the things we all have in common now is collective anxiety. Anxiety is a, a, a normal thing. It's a healthy thing, actually. If you have a test the next day, you get anxious. You should get anxious. It's fine. But if you have anxiety and you don't know why, that's called collective anxiety or cultural anxiety, and there's no cure for it. In other words, you don't know why you're anxious, and therefore you can't get out of it very well unless you step into stories. Stories are vessels and containers that hold things that we can't hold simply with our usual ways of thinking and feeling. At least that's the old idea, and I'm sticking with that. So another old idea is you don't start something that you want to be meaningful without a song. Um, so another anxiety reducer is music, song, and rhythm. Um, you can shift everything going on in the brain and in the feeling system just by shifting the rhythm. And traditional people throughout the world would use songs to carry things that you can't carry in conversation and you can't get rid of easily. Am I making sense? And people used to have shared songs. Uh, most traditional cultures have shared songs for just about everything that happens, for an illness, for a tragic loss, for a delightful celebration. They have songs that help them do that. And uh, so I thought I'd start with a song. Are you ready for that? Yeah. yeah? Um, and so this is a song I think of a lot these days. Um, it's a song from the Dagara tribe in West Africa, uh, a tribe that I worked with uh, for quite a while. As a matter of fact, they gave me this drum. This is not uh, a drum I purchased. I didn't steal it. It was a gift from the tribe. And they also gave me a bunch of songs. And this is one of them. And, uh, and the rule with traditional songs is you don't have to be accurate, right? It's in a language you don't know. And it doesn't matter if you're on key. The real main thing is volume. So the, this is a good song because it only has one word. <clears throat> and the word is azima, which is the Dagara word for, it means the presence of the earth and gratitude to the earth for being there uh, in that one word. So it goes like this. <clears throat> azima wo -e. azima wo Azima wo, Azima wo, Azima wo. You get the idea? Praise to the earth. The earth is holding us no matter what we do. Make your worst mistake, take another step, and the earth will meet your foot. The earth represents welcoming, forgiveness, 
uh, abundance. It's a really important source of energy. And according to the old cultures, even if you're standing on concrete, which we're now sitting on, the energy of the earth can come up through that and enter through your feet. Do you know the Spanish word duende? Duende is a reference to the dark energy of the earth trying to arise from the center of the planet through the feet of people in order to aid the expression of their spirit in life. You get that idea? So when you sing to the earth, you're inviting that energy. All right, you want to try it? Yeah. <clears throat> Azima wo Azima wo Azima wo Azima wo singing. Um, that's the old tradition. You know, everybody's upset, not sure what to do. Sit down and sing together. Um, sometimes the only harmony we can find is in a song. And I think we're living in a period where we're going to need the aid of old traditions to get through modern problems. Um, one of the problems with the modern world is it's an intensely collectivized society. That is to say, it diminishes the individual for the benefit of the collective. So people are considered to be part of an age group, a purchasing group, a voting group, all that kind of stuff. And there are people busy collecting all the information. They know better than we do what we're interested in by this point. But what that doesn't allow for is the individual. And so one of the really old ideas is that History doesn't happen in the outside world coming towards us. History is made in the depths of the individual human soul. Humans are here to make history, not to repeat it, and not to try to escape from it. So the individual is, all right, the big, big idea is called um, the three levels of the world. The macrocosm, 
Everybody knows macro means big. So the macrocosm is the systems of the galaxies and the stars. And then the microcosm is a minor version of the macrocosm. And each person is considered to be a micro version of the macrocosm. Uh, the poet Rumi, who has become famous in the United States, even though he died in the 14th century, he says the world inside is greater than the world outside. That gets back to the idea of imagination. That inside ourselves we are enormous uh, beings full of history, full of imagination, full of elements of nature as well. So the individual, in, the, in a certain sense, is equal to the big macrocosm. Um, and so the third one, of course, is in the middle, and that's called the mesocosm, as in mezzanine or mesozoic, something in the middle. And so no matter what happens in the culture, and we are in a period of unraveling, let's say, but no matter what happens, the stars still move in their courses. The macrocosm continues on. And no matter what happens in the culture, inside the depth of the soul of each individual person born, girl, boy, uh, gendered this way, gendered that way, uh, this kind of status, that kind of uh, immigrant status, whatever it is, each one born is born with a unique soul. And that unique soul is equal in certain sense to the macrocosm. So what happens is the mesocosm, the middle ground, gets extremely messy. It falls apart, right? We're, we're living in one of the most unusual times in the sense that nature is rattling and culture is unraveling, right? It's not just that they have put people in charge of the different departments of the government who think that that department shouldn't exist. Have you followed that? So it's not just that, it's that the institutions have been hollowing out anyway. You know, people are saying, geez, it might be the end of the world. No, the world already ended a while ago. We're in the after effect of a world that we used to think existed. You get what I'm saying? And I'll, I'll explain why that's not the worst thing that could happen. But in the meantime, the mesocosm gets all disrupted and, and you get all kinds of terrible things going on, fearful things going on, increase of anxiety, lack of coherence, uh, fake news instead of real news, whatever you want to focus on, it's all the disturbance in the mesocosm. So that won't be easily fixed. It's not going to be fixed by the next election or the one after that. It's a big cycle moving through the whole of, of the world, so to speak. So the, the one idea is, when the mesocosm gets so rocky that you can't orient properly, you have two other places to go. One is to be in touch with the big singing of the spears and the ongoing drama of creation happening every night, every day. The movement of all those planets, the song that they're singing. And the other place to go is to go deep inside and be in touch with the root of one's own being, which I've written a book about to say, one, one of the key parts of that is genius. That is to say, it's, uh, oh, this, I have a hard time with the modern world because I love language and I'm always studying the roots of words. And so in the modern world, words often mean the opposite of what they're supposed to mean, like myth and false, but also genius. Most people think genius means high IQ or unusual talent, but the word genius means the spirit that's already there when you're born. 
The genius is a spirit inside each person. Everyone is a genius in their own right. Everyone came here with certain gifts and qualities intended to be given to the world. That's the purpose of being in the world. And so when the mesocosm and the institutions don't provide stability or protection, connecting to the big movement uh, of the planets and the stars, people used to have no lights at night. The lights were the stars. The whole world came to an end when daylight ended, right? Remember when they had sundials? After dark, the sundial doesn't work well. <laughs> it can't dial anything in. And so everything used to disappear. And, night, and since there was no time, everybody was in eternity. And then in the morning when the sun came back, the hours started up again. And people used to dip into eternity every night. It's hard to do that now. So you can do it, though, in your dreams or by, by being connected to things that have a touch of the eternal in them. Little problem when you go inside if you happen to be, say, a Freudian, right? Right, you know what I'm saying? Like Freud, when he got older, he had re really big nightmares, uh, mostly about the idea that inside was a primal horde that was going to rise up and decapitate him. And so going inside became a bit of a problem. So I recommend being a Jungian because Jung was the student of Freud. You know how it is, the student reverses what the teacher was doing and Jung says deep inside is the divine waiting to be found. So if you follow that idea, then we go inside. Another way to look at that is this. In the modern world, there may be no co coherence, but there's a yoga studio in every strip mall. <laughs> Think about it. You know, uh, every strip mall has to have a, a, a coffee shop, you know, some kind of a printing operation and a yoga studio. <laughs> and, and the beauty of that is ideas of the West, of the East coming into the West, because in the East, they have had the idea for a very long time that what we're looking for is inside. And in the West, manifest destiny, uh, uh, materialistic ideas, people are looking for something outside that cannot simply be found out there. And so the movement of Eastern ideas into Western culture is really beneficial if you follow the idea that what we're looking for is inside. And, and, it, and then you don't have to be a Freudian and get worried. I'm not saying there aren't disturbing things in there. I mean, I assume you've had a family. Um, and, and you know, they took that survey of uh, families how many families are dysfunctional? And it turned out to be 103% because some of them are pathological liars and they, they spoke up twice. But um, so to get in touch with one deeper self, you have to go through some of the, the stuff uh, that has to do with family and stuff like that. But from a mythological point of view, Everyone has this seed of genius inside. That genius is connected to a destiny, and each person came here to find the path of their destiny and fulfill it. That's the old idea. Um, and I think it's ready for a comeback because uh, there's some old proverbs. One of them says, uh, in, in comfort, uh, genius is concealed. In struggle, genius is revealed. So, so one of the benefits of being in a time of trouble is that it's possible to reveal more of the hidden genius. In other words, if we think we're empty inside, which is the basic um, idea 
of modern culture that you're empty until the world writes on you. If we think we're empty inside, then we have nowhere to go when the outside structures begin to dysfunction. If we remember what all the old cultures said is that something inside us is unique, gifted, and valuable, then when the things outside aren't working, we can turn more fully inside and learn how our soul would have us go in the world. So that's the, the story of most old stories. Um, I thought I would read a poem to reinforce that. Oh, here's one. <laughs> so I, I collect poems and I mark the poems in the book and then I mark so many that it doesn't matter which one I read after a while. <laughs> William Stafford, a tremendous poet who lived in uh, Oregon, died about, what, 12, 13 years ago. I had the good fortune of working with him for years before he died. What happens when you get lost? Out in the mountains, nobody gives you anything. And you learn what the rules were after the game is over. And by then, it is already night, and it doesn't make any difference what anyone else is thinking or doing. You have to turn into an Indian. By that, he means you have to turn into an indigenous person. You have to find the indigenous roots of your own being, because there you will find healthy, active instincts and intuitions. And then you remember stories. And then you know that the tellers were part of all they said, and everyone is, even you, and they are all around you. But if you're too afraid, you will never find them. That's a reference to the idea, no one is ever really alone in this world, unless we're too afraid, and then we feel very alone. In traditional cultures, the ancestors are always with us. In other cultures, the spirits are with us, or elements of nature are, are with us. Uh, modern people get trapped in a narrow, logical idea of being alive and miss all the things trying to support our life, some of them unseen, some of them hidden inside. He goes on, those questions people used to ask, what would you do if, you know, what would you do if so-and-so got elected? What would you do if? They have their own answer now. Nothing. Listen, some things cannot be redeemed in a hurry, no matter about good intentions. What could be done had to have happened a long time ago, for mistakes have consequences that do not just disappear. You know how serious an issue that is now in this culture. Mistakes, untruths, misguided things, unethical things have consequences that do not simply disappear. Listen, if evil could simply be canceled, it wouldn't be very evil. That's a, that's a great line. You know, you get like a week off for that line. <laughs> Poets don't get paid much, but you get time off. <laughs> so here, and here he goes right into the idea of the macrocosm. Meanwhile, the stars you see while you drift away have their own courses. They watch you, and they already know your name. So that's a modern poet tying into what they call cosmology and mythology and saying the stars know our name. There's a really interesting thing that astrophysicists now, studying the origin of the universe, they call it the Big Bang, um, and they say 
what exists in the world all had to be there at the beginning or it couldn't exist. It's a pretty good idea. It's an old mythological idea too. They say everything at the beginning. So they deduce from that that everybody alive has to have a speck of that original star in them or they couldn't be here. That is to say everybody has a star inside. And you know the word destiny, it means um, destiny. It means of the stars. We are of the stars. And I'll tell you other things. I study science nowadays because science is catching up with myth. And so they have figured out now that there's something like 400,000 pounds of stardust falls, falls on the earth every year. And it doesn't just disappear, it gets absorbed into trees and plants. And when we eat plants, vegetables, and stuff like that, we're eating stardust. We're living on the stars, and we are born from the stars. I love that crap. <laughs> you know? After about 15 minutes of CNN, I tell myself that. <laughs> so that's the idea. We have a name, and it used to be understood, like in Mayan culture, uh, you have a name that no one knows, but it's really your name. But the stars know it uh, because we are the children of the stars. So I love these big ideas because to me, you need big ideas to defeat bad programs. You know what I'm saying? We're in something that's bigger than a political issue. I mean, there are political factors in it, but I think it's a much bigger thing. I think it's a challenge to the idea of democracy, to the idea of a meaningful, healthy culture. And I think more than that is the opportunity for the return of imagination. Because another old, old idea is when everything falls apart, there's an acceleration of calling. Calling, you know what I mean? The idea that, um, well, it's tricky in America because people are so hung up on choice. Like choice is interesting, I'm in favor of choice and I think you should have a level playing field and everybody should have a whole bunch of choices. But it's more important to be called than to simply have choices. Am I making sense? Yeah. Because the calling is calling to something beyond the obvious. And in fact, the calling is calling to the genius inside of the person. That's what it's calling to. And just for those, I see a few people look a little bit older in the audience, just you know, <laughs> by way of encouragement and diminishing anxiety because that's been said uh, was part of the plan. Um, no matter how old you get, the calling keeps calling. The calling is very specific to the individual and you could live 50, 60, whatever number of years and the calling keeps calling. It's an essential part to our soul. We're not here just to fit in. You have to fit in enough not to get arrested. But, but beyond that, we're here to answer the call and become a unique person. You, you know that idea? Remember the, uh, Miguel de Unamuno, the Spanish poet philosopher? He said, you want to live in such a way that when you die, everybody, everyone knows something is missing in the world. That's, that's our job, is to live and make enough soulful mistakes that we're not easily forgotten. I'm trying to say these things as an antidote to what's happening in the culture, which I think is gonna to continue to be very difficult. So one more big idea, and then I'll get into some stories. Um, an old Greek word is apocalypsis, not apocalypse. Apocalypse is, has come to mean uh, the big fiery end of everything, right? Right, or you know, zombie apocalypse now. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you realize the, the walking dead becomes popular because it's symptomatic of the culture. 
when so many people are walking dead because they haven't awakened to the thing trying to call them to live a real life. That's how that stuff works. The popular thing is a kind of an interpretation of a cultural thing going on. So anyway, apocalypsis uh, means a time when things fall apart and other things are born. It's a time of collapse and renewal. In other words, are we living through a collapse? Are we living through a challenge or even threat to common freedoms, to um, the idea of democracy, to the chance to have a meaningful life? Yes, we are. But while those things are rattling and collapsing, on the other side, other things are trying to be born. I'm not going to tell it tonight, but there's a wonderful Native American story where the old woman of the world who weaves everything has her weaving unravel. And she sits in the midst of all this unraveling, trying to figure out what to do, goes through whatever emotions you have when everything unravels before your eyes. And then she sees a loose thread, and she picks up the thread, and she gets a new vision, and she begins weaving the whole world again. We're in that moment of collapse and renewal, of disaster and opportunity. I hope that makes sense, because otherwise we're screwed. <laughs> right? There has to be more to the world than what people are making it out to be right now. And it has to be, I'm not, I'm not saying don't vote, you know, vote several times. But, <laughs> but what I'm saying is that politics cannot answer these questions. We're living at a time um, of radical climate change. They have no idea what to do about it. Therefore, they'll keep arguing about health care. Well, they're not, they're not arguing about health care. They're arguing about insurance policies, right? Because health care, you know what it, these are two great words. When you put them together, everybody, everybody should feel better. Health and care. <laughs> health comes from an old uh, English word meaning whole, hale, and, and healthy. And care comes from an old word meaning deeply interested in, sympathetic with, and willing to support. That's not what we're getting. We're not getting health care. We're getting insurance against finding out what health might be like. I mean, this is the part of the problem. And so they keep fighting about things that aren't the things because they don't know. And again, loss of imagination. We live in a world that has gone flat again. Everybody's connected, but horizontally. There's a loss of vertical imagination. Back to the idea of the stars. Humans are such that our feet are planted on what they used to call the goat's earth. And our imagination minds are supposed to be connected to the heavens above. And we are supposed to be like channels of energy passing between those two deep, great places, deep and high places. Vertical imagination. And what's happened is the world has gone horizontal, right? Everybody's connected alone. That's one of the interpretations. We're all connected alone because it's isolating to be only horizontally connected. When community is a unity form because something is so deep, it pulls people together no matter what their differences are. Am I making sense? Yeah. Community is not proximity, sorry. I know Vashon, people are... <laughs> <laughs> Just a word thing. Um, community is not proximity to others. It's a connection made because something so deep happens that people feel a genuine deep need for each other and care for each other, and that makes things whole and healthy. And when people are connected, everybody's more healthy, and the more a culture is divided, the more everybody gets unhealthy. 
I mean, I'm just saying these things because we're in trouble, you know. So, all right, I want to move towards uh, stories. Um, and I want to reinforce just that one idea. We, this is a place where choice matters. Things are going to keep falling apart, um, you know, partly because of this apocalypsis movement that takes quite a while to go through. It's happened before, by the way. That's the me message of mythology. Someone survived to tell the story or we wouldn't have the stories. And so, oh, I should make that clear. Right. Uh, did you get the memo that the world's not going to end? The word end turns out not to mean completion. The word end doesn't mean finito, good night, over and out. The word end is like it means loose end or, or kind of a ragged end. And in the end, there's a loose thread or a loose end that starts it all over again. The world is going to continue. From a mythological point of view, it can't end. It starts over again. It doesn't mean it's not going to be hard and it isn't difficult right now, but it can't simply end. Uh, to me, I'm relieved by that idea. That's not the issue that the world would end. The issue, I think, is whether we get caught on the side of the unraveling and the despair and the cynicism and the conflict that is very real and very intense and easy to get caught in, especially if we don't remember that the other side is the renewal, reimagination, and actual recreation. So there's another mythical, mythological idea. The world Creation didn't happen back there, and then it's just been kind of bumping along since. Creation is ongoing, right? I'm not sure if people know that. Like in, in, in Western culture, they say in the beginning was the word, uh, and then they codify it into a book and say you have to believe it. But in tribal cultures, they say in the beginning was the sound, the resonance and reverberation and rhythm of life that once it started cannot stop. And it continues to recreate the world to each person living and all of the plants and everything too. So I like that idea a lot better. It doesn't mean we can't have big trouble. We already have that. It just means don't worry about the end of the world. And then if you take on the idea that the creation is ongoing, then humans are invited to be part of the ongoing creation of the world. And what I'm saying is when everything is falling apart, there's an acceleration of calling, and why not answer the call? It's just going to get more bumpy, difficult, disturbing, unbelievable anyway. So why not be on the path where we're being called to go? Am I making sense? Or someone once, I wrote a book called Why the World Doesn't End. I collected stories from all different cultures that, that show that it renews from its own ashes and so on. And someone said to me, well, well, wait a minute. You wrote the book. You can't really prove this. What if the world ends? <laughs> and I said, consider this. If the world ends, there's no one around to tell me I was wrong. <laughs> if the world ends, we're all gone. So whatever. But even if the world is ending, I'd rather be walking towards the destiny my soul is called to than doing something else. And if the world doesn't end, I'd rather be walking towards the destiny. I be, you get what I'm saying? It's the best thing to do, and it's the nature of human nature to be on a unique individual adventure uh, that is the unfolding of a life that is wound inside us and unfolds like the plot line of a good story. So that's, the, that's my answer, antidote, to what's happening in the culture as it continues to rattle. <laughs>
One more turn I want to make on that. If I'm following the path that I'm called to, which, by the way, announces itself repeatedly throughout life, if I'm following that, I am much more likely to wind up at an intersection where I can be helpful to other people because I'm rooted in who I really am. And if you take the idea I said before, everybody's gifted, everybody has something to give, I'm more likely to be helpful to others and helpful to the bigger causes in the world if I'm on the path I'm supposed to be on. Am I making sense? There is no single idea, no big vote, no big cause that's going to work for everybody. It's not like that. Um, the only myth I've ever seen in my lifetime that had any purchase in the modern world was the hero's journey. Remember, remember, you know the hero's journey? Joseph Campbell um, and that kind of, and it's a great story, the hero's journey. I just think it's, it's not the right story for now for several reasons. It's too often imagined as what we're after is outside ourselves. It's a little bit too masculine, the whole hero thing. And it's, right? And it's too easily turned into superheroes, which is a big, fantastic waste of time. <laughs> so I suggest the genius myth, which is you don't have to go looking for it because it's already inside you. Everybody has it, girl, boy, any kind of person you want to imagine already has it. And it's a matter of finding it from inside and bringing it out. And given that the wor world is in so much trouble throughout nature, throughout culture, heroism isn't going to fix it. As a matter of fact, heroism has gotten us into a lot of trouble. But if a whole bunch of people answered the call in all their individual strange and unique genius ways, maybe a whole bunch of people awakening could begin to solve all the problems. Does that make sense? That's what I'm suggesting. That's a mythological idea that is rooted in the Western world. Genius is a Western kind of tradition. So that's the idea. And then I've laid it out in, in, the, in the Genius Myth book. All right, so now I want to move into stories. And the first one I just want to do a summary of uh, before getting to an older, deeper story. But one of the things about stories that says, this has happened before. In stories, they have the old idea, nothing new under the sun. So it may come, appear with a different guise but it doesn't appear brand new. That the, the things, the ongoing troubles in the world and the ongoing ways to solve the troubles in the world keep repeating. And stories hold kind of the wisdom of that. And so I'm always looking for stories to explain what we're experiencing. That's my interest. How does myth work in the modern world? And so right now, the big thing going on in this culture where we live is obviously the late, you know, recent election, the new administration, and the chaos coming out of it. I mean, I say chaos because they say chaos. And, and then I try to say, I send memos saying, you know, if you play with chaos, it plays you. You cannot use play chaos very long before it plays on you. But anyway, looking for stories. And it's interesting to me to see how uh, the emperor without clothes is being referenced a lot. You know, and that's a good thing. But there are other stories about people who rise to power that might come closer to the mark. And so I happened to open a book of uh, world stories the other day, or last week, really. And, the, and I opened to a story from Eastern Europe called the Tsar Trojan Goat Ears. Uh, Tsar, the Tsar is a, is a Russian word for kind of like king or ruler. 
uh, Trojan is a mistranslation of Trajan, which is actually the East European Midas, King Midas. Uh, and the story goes like this. Uh, oh, by the way, it's translated from the Russian. Just <laughs> interesting detail. It's <laughs> what happens these days. Uh, so what happens is there's this little kingdom, and they have a king called Tsar Trojan. And it turns out that he has the ears of a goat, but no one knows because he has a hairdo that covers it. <laughs> Swear to God. Like a backcomb. And uh, so no one knows. He has this secret, and no one knows it. He knows it, and he's trying to really keep it secret. That's the problem with a person like that, is they have to work really hard to keep the secret. And then every once in a while, he needs a haircut. And so the barber comes in, cuts the hair, and the, you know, the king says, did you see anything strange? And the barber says, well, there is a kind of goat ear thing <laughs> off with his head. So they have to get another barber next time. So pretty much they're running out of barbers after a while. And this one master barber is invited to come and do the haircut. And, and he sends a message saying, you know, I'm sick, but I'm sending my apprentice. It has an apprentice in it. This story. I'm, I'm not even kidding. It's in a book from hundreds of years ago. So, so nothing new under the sun. So the apprentice goes and does the haircut, and the king said, anything unusual? And he goes, no, all normal. The king says, okay, you're now going to have a royal position. You'll be in the royal court. And, of course, the deal is he can't reveal the secret that he knows in order to stay in the royal court, Sean Spicer. Nothing new under the sun. And so things go on and everything's pretty cool, except the young apprentice keeps having a problem. He has a secret he's carrying that no one else knows, and he thinks it's really important. And, he, and, and finally, he goes back to his master and says, I have a secret. I have to, what do I do? And, the, and he says, well, you could tell me, or you could go tell the pastor, or you could give a, dig a hole in the ground and yell it three times into the ground. So this is a long time ago. So, so the apprentice goes, I'll go with the door number three. <laughs> Digs a hole in the ground, yells into it, the Tsar Trojan has goat ears three times, <laughs> covers up the hole and goes back, you know, to the palace. Uh, very quickly from that spot where he said those words, an, an elder tree sprouts up and it grows branches and the branches are particularly straight and true. And shepherds, seeing those branches, immediately start cutting them to make flutes, because that's what they used to do. And as soon as they make the flutes and they go to play them, the flutes will only play one thing. The Tsar Trojan has goat ears. <laughs> so pretty soon, all over the place, the word is out that the Tsar Trojan has goat ears. And, and pretty soon, everybody understands what's going on, that there's a secret right in the center of the culture, right in the center of power, and now the secret is out. And, and then, of course, you know, the czar intends to cut off the head of the apprentice, but it's too late because everybody knows. And, and the whole culture has to go through a change. So that's an old story from uh, Eastern Europe, including from Russia, about what happens when someone in the office, highest office, has a secret. And I'm sure everybody has already figured out um, that uh, the secret, in a sense, of Donald Trump is his extreme narcissism, right? And you can study that. Um, 
So one reason I'm telling you, this isn't strictly political. It's actually mythological and it's psychological. In other words, when something is wrong and a big mistake has been made, people need psychologic, psychological awareness and the courage to say, this is a mistake. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to go past the politics of it because they will take a long time to admit the mistake. And it's not simply politics. It's someone has been put in power that is not able to serve others because the narcissistic bubble has never broken. Am I making sense? A person with that level of narcissism has, can only serve themselves no matter what happens. That's what's going to happen. It's already occurring. And, um, and so it's a matter of time, I think, before everybody knows it. Um, I don't know. I'm hoping the story is right. And, and maybe we can all go make flutes. I don't know. <laughs> but, but I think that's likely to happen there. But also the point of the story is that a psychological understanding of what's happening in the world is very important. And when you see, uh, when it looks like a secret is being covered up, it is. And I assume everybody knows what happens with, with everybody has narcissism. Did you get that memo? Uh, just most of, it has, most of us have a little bit or you know, some. And then we have a narcissistic bu bubble that gets broken. We have such a difficult time with something, or we lose a loved one, or we get sick, or we get our ass kicked, or whatever it is, and the bubble bursts, and we realize we're not that special, and we realize that there are forces bigger than us, and we realize there's people hurting more than we are. You get what I'm saying? That's the breaking of the bubble. And then some people, perhaps if they're wealthy, it lasts longer. Or if they've been supported a certain way, they don't have their bubble burst. And we have someone now at the peak of power considered to be the most powerful person in the world. Oh, by the way, narcissists want to be the most powerful person in the world. Not only that, the word Donald means ruler of all. Yeah. I mean, this, this is like a cursed person who, who has the narcissism in a narcissistic name. So anyway, that's a psychological view of it. Just to cut through and not get caught into politics and think this is about left and right conservative and liberal, this is a mistake. And so it's a challenge whether a culture can wake up and acknowledge its own mistakes. That's the challenge, I think, and how quickly can it happen. Um, and I think it's also, uh, here's another idea. We've gotten to the point in American culture where, where we elect our symptoms. This is one to chew on. Yeah, this is an adult statement. Um, cultures all around the world look at America and call it narcissistic. So it's as if we have now put in charge the very symptoms we have to penetrate and outgrow. It's not important to be the best per country in the world, the number one, best at everything. We just fell to 14th in happiness. They have a happiness thing now. You know, they measure everything. And so which countries are the happiest? And America was at 13. Just recently, we went to 14. If this administration continues, <laughs> you know, we'll be setting minus level. But um, uh, so it's not important. It's narcissistic to think we're the best country. It, it's kind of childish. It's, it, it's not mature. It's not developed psychologically. Am I making sense? And so what's going on now is an opportunity for the uh, maturing an awakening of the psychology of a whole culture that says we don't want to get caught in this kind of stuff again. That's just my take on that. So, um, 
So I wanted to get to an older story that has some of the same issues in it. And I used to hesitate to tell this story, but with what's going on in the world now, it just seems much more appropriate. And so this is a story from the Vedas. It's from ancient India. It's probably, well, it's thousands of years old. And, and it goes like this. Oh, I should mention, um, I have a tendency to do uh, multicultural things. So um, um, I'm going to tell an ancient story from India um, while playing a drum for West Africa with a goat skin on it from a volunteer goat from Vashon. Uh, and I'll do it uh, in a New York accent. And then afterwards, I'll give an Irish interpretation. <laughs> Just what happened. <clears throat> so once upon a time, can you hear me over the drum? You all right? Once upon a time, not in this time, but in another time. Not in this place, but in another place. In that place, there was a boy who was playing with a ball, rolling it over the surface of the earth, which itself is a ball rolling through the universe. And he was playing and rolling the ball when the ball rolled into a hole in the ground that had been made by some ants once upon a time. But after the ants left, a serpent had crawled into the hole, and it happened to be a poisonous serpent. And so when the boy reached into the hole in order to recover his ball, he was bitten by the serpent, and the poison went right into his body, and he fell down unconscious right there. Then it happened that his mother and father sensed that something was wrong. People used to be like that. They could sense a change in the field around them, and they went looking for their boy. And when they found him laying unconscious on the ground, after checking to make sure that he was still alive, they began to think, how could they fix this? They looked into the hole, saw the serpent, realized that he was poisoned, and began to worry and figure out what to do because it was a long time ago. There were no hospitals. There were no HMOs. There weren't even doctors nearby. So they didn't know what to do, and all they could think of was not that far away was a holy man, a monk who lived in a little hut, and they thought holy people sometimes can bring a cure. So they took their only child to the holy man, and they brought him and laid him down there. He was completely unconscious. And the father said to the holy man, listen, this is our only child. We love him dearly, and we want you to cure him. You must have some kind of medicine. And the holy man said, I'm not that kind of holy man. I have no doctoring abilities, and I have no medicine, and there's nothing I can do to help you. And the father said, there must be something you can do. People say 
If someone makes an act of truth, that can reverse the course of poison in a person or even in a culture. Can't you make an act of truth in order to reverse the poison in the life of our only child? And so the holy man said, well, I could do that. And he put his hands on the forehead of the boy. And he said, my act of truth is this. For five days after I was initiated into the spiritual practice that I am still in, for five days I was imbued with the spirit and not doing nothing but living the spiritual life. But after that time, and for the 50 years ever since then, I have been wishing that my course of life was different, wishing that I had tasted the world and knew what the world is about. That's the truth, that for a holy man, I was only holy for five days. And I say this truth in order to drive the poison out of the boy and bring the boy back into life. And at that point, the boy's eyes opened and he lifted his head and looked around, but the rest of his body was still inert. And so the holy man said to the father, how about if you make an act of truth in order to bring your son back and drive the poison from his body? And so the father, realizing this was in fact the right thing to do, put his hands on the chest of his son. And he said, I am known for everyone, by everyone as being a wealthy and powerful man. But my act is, of truth is I have never given generously to anyone. When I have given, I've given reluctantly. I have never given of the abundance that I have received myself. The truth is that although I am very powerful and wealthy, I have never been generous. And I make this act of truth in order to drive the poison from the body of this boy and bring him back to life. And no sooner did he see it than the boy sat up and he was now looking around but the lower part of his body still did not move. And so then the father turned to the mother and said, my dear, I think it's important that you make an act of truth in order that our son could completely recover, drive the poison from his body and come back into life. And the mother said, I have a truth to speak, but I cannot say it in front of you, meaning her husband. And she looked imploringly at the holy man hoping he would save her and he just looked away and then the father the husband said to his wife whatever you have to say please say it for the benefit and health of our son and so the wife and mother of that child said i have an act of truth and the truth is that i have only ever loved one person in this world and that is our child that is laying here and I have never loved my husband. As a matter of fact, I have come to hate him. And that's the truth that I have to speak. And I speak it now to drive the poison out of the body of my son and bring him back into life. And no sooner did she say it than the boy was up on his feet and looking around for his ball and ready to go playing. And off he went. And that left the three people standing there looking at each other for quite a while until the father broke the silence by saying to the holy man, I wonder this, why did you not simply go out and enjoy the pleasures of the world? Why did you live a life that was false to you just because you had started down that path? And the holy man said, people respect me as a holy man. They never inquire to see whether I'm living out that promise or not. 
and I was afraid of losing that respect and finding myself unrespected and a little lost in the world. It was out of fear that I continued to live that way. But I'm curious about you. Everyone knows you to be wealthy and powerful. How is it that you are not also generous? And the father said, I am simply a person who inherited wealth from his own family and made something out of it. And everybody expects me to be generous, but I am not actually generous. And I have never found out why I should be in this world myself. And again, the holy man said, I don't understand it. Why didn't you just try it? And he said, because I feared losing the power and the belief of other people that I was strong and wealthy. And then he said to the wife, but you, my dear, if you hated me so, why did you not simply leave our marriage? And she said, because I feared that people would judge me and I feared that I would be lonely and lost and diminished in the world. That's the only reason I stayed. And they all became quiet again until the father said to his wife, I hope that you will forgive me for making your life hard and for not noticing that the love between us was not there or was no longer there. And after a while, the wife said, I forgive you for that and maybe you can forgive me for the hatred I've been carrying for so long. And after that, they just stood a little while longer looking at each other until the father said to the holy man, I hope you now could go back into the world and trust yourself and, and find the pleasure of the world and measure that against the holy life. I hope you can go and expand and live your life more truly. And I will try to do the same. And the wife said, and I will go find more love because I feel like that is necessary to my very soul. And so each of them set off in the direction they now felt they had to go. And in terms of a story, there's nothing more to say, except maybe if we're living in a time that people call post-truth, ruled by fake news and by people in denial and refusing to admit the simplest true things, maybe the point for us is to simply live the truth of our lives and in that way reduce the poison in the world and make the world safer and healthier and better for all the children who will come along afterwards. Maybe our job is to learn how to live and make acts of truth. <laughs> Quite a story, huh? So the tradition with stories is to sit for a minute and see what struck you. And it's not as if we have a chance for everybody to speak, but just to hear some little truth of, of what each person, you know, this is a critical thing. This is a mythological antidote to what's actually happening. Because telling lies and refusing to admit the truth is not innocuous. It creates poison, and that poison spreads, and more people are empowered to say and live untruths. You get what I'm saying? There has to be an antidote, and it can't simply be about the others that are doing it. It actually turns out to be about us and how we live our lives. That's my sense of it. 
So just what struck you in the story or what truth does it bring to mind for you just so that we can hear a little bit of the community of story? Anyone? We'll believe you. Say it a little louder. The truth drove out poison. The truth drives out poison. Um, this, the poison is getting deeper in the world and it is very disturbing to the natural instincts of the soul. And so the antidote is to find more truth. Yes? Material what? Material wealth um, doesn't have generosity. Simply having wealth and having material goods, which is the aim most normally associated with America, uh, has nothing to do with generosity. And generosity is one of the deep powers of the soul that is an indication. See, if, I, if, we, ha if we know we're gifted, then we know we have to give. You get what I'm saying? If, if someone knows they're gifted, it comes very quickly to understand we have to give. And uh, community is made through the giving of things, not through the acquiring of things. I know it's simple to say, but there are times when it has to happen. Yeah? It's, it seemed to me that each, each of the characters was driven by fear. And there's a community of fear, and the only way they could break through that was to reveal the truth about themselves. Okay. Okay, thank you. So two, two really important things there. Something of a tragic nature is needed in order to remind us that the truth is that important. You get what I'm saying? Something that we love has to be on the verge of being lost or poisoned to death, usually before we will go, oh, wait a minute, what about an act of truth? And so one way to understand what's going on is a poisoning of the future of the culture, right? That's why it's a child in the story. It's a metaphor to say all of the children are going to be growing up in an atmosphere of poison. And let's face it, there's two kinds of poison at play here. One is the poisoning of the atmosphere of nature, which everybody's inhaling as a poisonous kind of thing, which you realize what just happened with the, the latest executive offer, uh, what do they call it, executive order, uh, the executive disorder, which was yesterday reducing the EPA on and on and on. It's, it's creating literal poison in the world. And then the other kind of poison is the cultural poison, uh, the, the misuse of power, the misuse of wealth, the reckless denying of opportunity to other people, and the willingness to punish people for some reason or other. So that's one thing. And thank you for that. And it's, it's, it's maybe only when we realize what's about to be lost that we could figure out how to make the acts of truth. And the other thing is the mention of fear. Each, you know, the story is beautifully constructed. It's about spirituality, one third of it. It's about uh, wealth and culture and family, one third of it. And it's about love, the other third. Those, those are pretty major things in life. Um, and people are afraid to deal with each of those properly and so a couple of things about fear. Um, everybody experiences fear. Everybody experiences all the emotions. But fear becomes prob problematic when we allow it to paralyze us. The old, uh, one old idea was that uh, fear is the awakener. 
Are things what's happening? <laughs> what do we do? What is it? What? Okay. I thought I might have said chaos too many times. Um, fear used to be called the awakener. In other words, the role of fear is not to stop us, but to awaken us. And um, so fear comes from the English root that gives us fair, as in thoroughfare. The root meaning of fear is to go through it. Fear tells us what we have to go through. I'm just trying to redefine it because when we allow fear to talk to us, it wakens us up. Like the parents in the story become afraid they're going to lose their child. And rather than be paralyzed with the fear, it puts them into action and eventually puts them into finding the antidote inside themselves. And it's a short evening, so I have to make some pretty, you know, like uh, quick moves. <laughs> Native American people, we're, we live in a Native American place. And the people that were here before most of us came here had the idea that everybody is born uh, with medicine inside them. And when a person becomes truly themselves, they automatically have medicine to give. That is to say, we each have something to give of an antidote to the poison that is growing throughout the culture. And we, if, if we're too afraid, we won't do it. Um, and if we realize that we're already losing something, we might be more willing to try. I'd rather mistakenly try than have not done it and come to the end of my days and going, damn it, I wish I had done something. Am I making sense? Yeah. And again, I'm trying to say that if you take the old idea that everybody has genius and gifts to give, then by getting closer to the truth, we're closer to the gifts that we have and we can begin to learn how to give them. But I think we're in this struggle for what the truth is for being a human being and, and some of the truths are really important truths, like the truths that we come here to love this world. And we cannot love the world or other pe people if we don't love ourselves. We have to get past the things that stop us from being genuine and real and find a way to love ourselves or, or we're allowing or contributing to the poison. I'm just you know, ex making exaggerated statements. Uh, because why not? You know, some of it might be true. But I'm also trying to argue for the importance of the individual. Notice it's just people from their own life saying, this is the act of truth I have. That's, in ancient India, they said you could reverse the course of the holy river if you told the truth. So, so there, there's um, Mahatma Gandhi. Remember Gandhi? Remember? It was called Satyagraha, when he decided to walk all the way across India. And he decided to walk back to the place where he was born, because he had been born on the shores and of the ocean. And his family for years had been salt collectors. And the British government, in imposing the Raj on India, had said it was illegal for any, anyone except the, uh, the, the, the company, the East India Company, I think, to collect salt. And so people who had collected salt for their whole history couldn't do it anymore. And he realized that that was such a poison that all he wanted to do was walk all the way across India, everybody knowing he was about to pick up salt and break the law. And that brought down the whole British Raj, that act of truth. You get what I'm saying? And, and I'm thinking a little bit of elders, you know, like uh, everybody gets older, but not everybody gets elder, right? In Africa, they say white hair doesn't make the elder. Um, but 
we have the largest proportion of people in America age-wise are over 60. And it's as if there's a potential for elders to make moves that are acts of truth. Do you get what I'm saying? Because normally uh, the politicians wouldn't be allowed to go this far off base because the elders would come in and say, okay, children, calm down. You know what I'm saying? Like the elders would come in and say, no, no, everyone needs health care. If you want to play about insurance, play about insurance, but everyone needs health care. It is a right. It is a communal, community, human thing that everybody needs. Am I making sense? And the elders would come in and say, listen, it's okay to earn a lot of money. Do it if that's what you like. But when the disparity between the less than 1% and everybody else gets so great, it makes everybody sick and it spreads poison. So stop doing that. You know what I'm saying? That it might take more than politics. It might take people old enough to know better, to act better, and set the example. I don't know what those are. I'm saying the genius inside everybody knows. There's no one plan. The genius inside everybody knows what best to do. I'm just trying to present ideas that might be useful since I think the struggle is going to be ongoing. What else in the story? Yeah. Yeah, you know, there's a certain part of a human life that is lived as oneself. I'm not saying, you know, don't get married, don't have children, don't participate in all kinds of groups and stuff. But there are parts of the adventure of life that, that has to be lived individually. I call it the second adventure, right? The first adventure is to get a life, you know, grow up, get in trouble, get married a few times, you know. I mean, when things are interesting, why do them once? But... But the second adventure is responding to the call and really risking being in unusual circumstances with the understanding that there is something unusual and unique trying to come out of a person, and it doesn't come out when we're comfortable, right? What's the old saying? Smooth seas make bad sailors. <laughs> you got, we got to be in the rough water. And, and guess what? We got rough water everywhere you turn now. So there's less reason not to find this unusual thing that we came to life to do. Yeah. As a parent, um, Say it again. Yeah. She was saying that the, each of the adults in the story were afraid of being judged by others, and that kept them in lanes that are pre-approved on a collective basis. You know, we have to fit into some degree, but we're not here for that, really. I, I really, um, I was working with some environmental groups and, and some of them were saying, well, you know, humans have really made a mess of the whole thing. And if, if uh, nature decides she's finished with the experiment of humans, that's fine. And I said, whoa, wait a minute, no, no, no. Misunderstanding. <laughs> humans are here for a reason. There's an old, the, the Mayan story of the Pulp of Bull, the creation story of Mayan people. Uh, says that after uh, the gods, they have like 11 gods working on creation. They, they didn't just have one. They just thought, you know, you need a few people to work on a big project. And uh, so they had, I think, like 11. And, uh, and after they had done everything and all the animals were there and all the plants were there and the mountains and the rivers, and it was all so beautiful and something was missing. And they tried to figure out what's missing. And it was a creator called Heart of Heaven. I love that name, Heart of Heaven who said, I think what's missing is a being that can consciously 
acknowledge and recognize the beauty of creation. And I think there's a second thing missing, which is a gratitude for the gift of life. And so they decided, let's try making some beings like that. And, uh, and you know how it is in a story, it takes three times. You know, the first time they made the human beings out of mud and they were charming and, and they were kind of soft and touchy uh, and everything was good until it rained. They all melted into the mud. So then they said, well, let's make ones that can stand up better. And so they made humans out of sticks. And uh, those turned out to be a little hard-headed and hard-hearted. And, uh, and then for some reason, they got involved in technology. And they started making all these technologies. And it was quite irritating. And all the animals went to the gods and said, you know, these people are ruining the whole earth with their technology and stuff. I don't know. Maybe that's the one we're in now. Anyway. So they had to make a really heavy storm and heavy rain to get rid of the stick people. Uh, and they said, okay, third time, we hope it works. And they decided to make people out of corn uh, because corn represented life itself and because corn was a holy plant. And so they made people out of corn. And when they made the people out of the corn, they were really good people. Not only that, they had tremendous vision. They could see just the way the gods see, which turned out to be a problem because the gods got upset about that. You know how gods can be. Right? Right? Remember the Garden of Eden? Anyway, the gods get upset real easily. And uh, so the gods said, wait a minute. We can't have these characters down there seeing what the kind of vision we have. So they said, we have to take the vision away. And Heart of Heaven said, you can't take it completely away. That would be like unfair. That would be an exaggerated executive order. <laughs> so they said, why don't we diminish their vision? But they still could see really brilliantly when they look through stories, when they look through myth. And let's put something in them that reminds them when they're in the deepest trouble that they're closest to their vision. And so that's us. We're the ones that when we accept honestly the trouble we're in, nature in big trouble, culture in big trouble, it may be fearsome or scary, but it puts us closer to the antidotes and closer to the part that we might do. At least that's the idea behind all the big stories. All right, anything else we need to say about, yes? What about the boy going right back to playing with his ball? <laughs> okay, so I recognize the motherly instinct there. Children are supposed to play. Children are supposed to play. So now that the poison has been dealt with, and I don't know, you know, the, they probably go in and do something with the snake. Uh, notice the snake again. Uh, it's in a lot of the old myths, but uh, children have to go back to play. One of the things that's going on right now, the world is so heavy, and the anxiety in the air and the fear in the air is affecting the children uh, and the parenting, because everybody's afraid and not sure exact, exactly why, and the children don't get to play enough. Children are supposed to carefree play and feel the playfulness and the creative energy in the world that way. And the parents are supposed to be dealing with the poisons and the conflicts. Am I making sense? And so the story is trying to say, if the truth is dealt with and the antidotes are found, then the children can go back and play. Um, it doesn't mean there isn't danger in the world, but that's my sense of it. Yes, yes.
Yeah. Very good insight. Could you hear that? It seems like the snake at first is the villain in the story, but the snake actually brings the truth out. So this isn't a lot of old stories where, so um, like in the story of the old woman who's weaving the world, which I, tells it really beautifully, she makes this beautiful garment, the most beautiful thing anybody's ever seen. But her other job is she has to stir the soup of creation or else all the seeds will burn and the plants won't grow and all this kind of stuff. So she leaves the beautiful garment laying on the floor of the cave where she hangs out. And, and the dog that's there uh, comes and sees a loose thread and pulls it until it has unraveled the entire weaving that the old woman was weaving for Lord knows how many years. And that's when she comes back. And all her work has turned into chaos. And that's when she picks up the thread and starts weaving. And, and, and they say when they tell the story, people will say, damn that dog, damn that snake for causing that trouble. And that's when the elders say, now, wait a minute, you don't understand. That old woman was weaving the world. If she ever finished weaving it, the world would be over. The world has to fall apart in order to start recreation again. So it's not to say go out and get bitten by a snake, but it's to say once it has happened, it begins, the poison that is spreading has the activating quality of bringing out the antidote to the poison. Once it has happened, we're already in it. The poison is spreading throughout the country. What's happening to people who are here uh, because they came north from Mexico? What's happening to people who are poor who are being, you know, going to be more poor. The denigration of the feminine. Uh, go on and on and on. The, the beginning to hear the drum beats of going to war again. All that crazy stuff that people should know better than. It's already happening. The bite has already happened. The snake has already bit. And the question is, can we find the antidotes? And, and the toughness about this story that says the antidote has to be found inside oneself. We have to find truth in ourselves. We can't demand it from leaders if we're not living it. We can demand it, but we also have to live it. So thank you for the snake. Yeah. And in everybody's life. I mean, I, I don't know that anybody gets through their life without facing tragedy and loss. And the old saying is, when you have a tragedy, a great conflict, or even a tremendous challenge, and you come out the other side, you're either going to be a smaller person or a bigger person. There's no other possibility. If you come out the same size, then it wasn't really a tragedy and it wasn't really a challenge. You get what I'm saying? So then the issue is when we are challenged individually, can we find the bigger sense of our soul? And the issue for us culturally now is we are being challenged collectively. Can we find the, the soul of America, can we find our connection to the soul of the world, is, is what I say. We're not in a clash of civilizations. We're in a battle, I think, for the soul of the world and our connection to it. Um, I hope that makes sense. Yeah? Um, so I thought I would read another poem or so, um, but this other idea is pressing on my mind. So one of the things that can happen when it gets this difficult, when it gets this painful, when it gets this sad and this kind of enraging, I mean the, the idea of just making stuff up and pretending it's true and denying other things. I mean the cruel rejection of people, 
the callous dismissal of things that are important in other people's lives. Uh, that kind of thing, when it gets like that, it's real easy to fall into despair uh, or cynicism um, or uh, isolation. And so it's really important that we imagine uh, and stay in touch with the greater things in the world. And so there's another old idea like that there's three, three levels to the world. In myth, it's always three. You know, macrocosm, mesocosm, microcosm. Uh, this is another three thing. And, uh, and so it says this. In the first uh, uh, layer of the world, it's the common world where, you know, you go to uh, the local thriftway and you run into people that you kind of know and they kind of know you and, and they say, hi, how are you? And you say, fine. How are you? You don't say, well, shit. I'm actually thoroughly scared, deeply depressed, and all the things that I thought I had grown past have come back recently. Not to mention last night, I dreamt of 32 goats eating at the roots of the building I'm living in. You know, you, 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 know, you go fine. And, and so that's the first layer of life, right? And, and there you just hope and everything keeps going. And there everybody agrees, green light go, red light stop. It's just the agreement level, simple level, and it is completely unsatisfying. You know, you, you can't get love there. You can't get beauty there. It's just a, a kind of a first layer. And where everybody wants to be is the third layer. And the third layer is the place of transcendent imagination. It's the place of love. It's a place where when you say love is all you need, it's true. It's the place of universal sisterhood and brotherhood. It's the place of empathy and compassion. It's the place of deeply caring. It's the place where the sunset truly is so beautiful that it goes into and warms your bones. The third layer, it's the place of the ecstatic. It's the place of the beautiful. And everybody needs some taste of that third layer um, or else the soul begins to wither. And the first layer can nev never give what's happening on, this, on the third level, layer. And so we all want to get there. And then the problem in the world is the only way to go from the first layer to the third layer is to go through the second layer. And the second layer is the place of fear and acrimony, the place of rage and outrage, the place, the place of sickness, the place of confusion, disorientation, the place of conflict. Everything that is difficulty in the world is in the second layer. And in order to get to the third layer, we have to go through the second. Does it make sense? I mean, this is very different from the bumper sticket that says you can get anything you want and you can be anything you, you want. You know what I'm saying? Some of the bumper stickers in America are really bad. <laughs> really, like you can be anything you want. What a, what a bad idea. We're lucky if we turn out to be who we're supposed to be much. Because, because then they say you can be anything and then they say anyone can be president. <laughs> bad idea. Really bad idea. People should be there that have something to give from the, you get what I'm saying? So anyway, the second layer is where all those bumper stickers are. And it doesn't, it, but so the truth is then, if we're trying to get to the third layer, which is what the soul wants, is where beauty is, love is, imagination, deep ideas, all there, we have to go through the second layer. I mentioned yoga, you know, and if you're doing yoga and you want to be in a certain asana, you don't go from 
the, the picture in the book of the asana to doing the asana, you have to go through pain and your body's going, cut it out. You know, we didn't come here to do this. And, and so there's always has to be a struggle. And I'll add one more thing. If you happen to get through the second layer of tragedy, loss, you know, fear, disorder, and find the third layer where you're in love and you're in beauty and everything is transcendent, the next time you try to go, it won't work the same way. The second layer is moving. So the way you got there before, you have, am I making sense? I'm just trying to say how it is. But my real point is this. If we don't get to the third layer once in a while, we get trapped in the second layer, and then we fall onto the side of things that says it's all falling apart, and it's all no good, and, and who cares, and you fall into the depression and the cynicism and so on. And so it isn't just a matter of having good intentions. It's a matter of getting a taste of that third layer. I hope that makes sense. So a few poems about the third layer, because I'm imagining we have to stop at some time. One of the problems with mythology, it is timeless. And so, so I sit here and I think, oh, here's another story. You know, he, he, this is a poem called by Rolf uh, Jacobson called Sunflower. What sower walked over the earth and which hands sowed our inward seeds of fire? They went out from his fists like rainbow curves to the frozen earth, to the young loam, to the hot sand. And they will sleep there greedily and drink up our lives and explode it into pieces for the sake of a sunflower that you haven't seen or a thistlehead or a chrysanthemum. So listen, let the young rain of tears come. Let the calm hands of grief come. It's not all as evil as you think. And the reference there is that there is a flower trying to be born from the struggle. You remember when uh, Mount St. Helens blew up and everything was covered with ash, you know, and all the cars looked the same, no matter how much you paid for it. And, um, and then and all the forest had been, the trees were wiped out like toothpicks. And they said, oh, it'd be a long time before anything grows back. Well, it wasn't a long time, first of all. And second of all, some of the species that grew back had not been ever seen there before. They were down in the earth and a certain amount of heat was required to make them come up and blossom. That's us. We're in the middle of the heat of this culture rattling, fighting with itself and afraid to become the real dream of America, which is not materialism, but it's actually the freedom of the individual to find a meaningful life. We're in the heat of that struggle, and there are flowers hidden trying to come out. It's not all as evil as we might think. That's the poetry argument. It's a Hafez poem. Unfortunately, it is not possible to complete yourself without experiencing sorrow, grief, turns out to be a vital ingredient that not only shapes the heart, but also enriches it. In other words, I turn the TV off, I, I, I watch the news. I want to know what's going on. I, I want to see what's happening. And then I turn it off because my heart gets so heavy. I just feel so sorrowful that I can't watch anymore. That sorrow is not necessarily a bad thing. It shapes the heart and it can enrich it. So endure the sadness the best you can whenever its season happens to come to you. For the rain that falls from your eyes can bring new life to a field. Just as on other days when you laugh, 
a sun takes birth in a sky that you will someday come to know. So see how all the essential elements are inside you, back to the microcosm idea. And see how it is that your soul is truly a sire of light. So this is the old idea that everything that exists is born of light, otherwise you couldn't see it. And that people have a light inside, and even if we're in the heavy times, we have a light that we can bring, and also we need to have those places where we can refuel our light. I'm talking about that third layer again. And maybe this is the last poem. One of the big untruths is that this world is about material things only, that this world is about political moves only, that this world is about defeating other people only, that this world is about obvious success only. And the reason that is a dangerous thing is it obscures the fact that this world, this world that we live in is a sacred place. The idea isn't that we live here and then if we're pretty good, we go to some sacred place like heaven. There's small print that people used to read that says what you find here is what you will find there. If we don't find the divine here, we're not going to find it there. If we don't find the sacred, I can't prove that, but I think it might be true. There's another old idea that I like. After we die, God makes love to us the way we made love to other people. So shape up out there. But the point is, in the middle of the carnage, as they're calling it, in the middle of the confusion, in the middle of the betrayal, because a huge betrayal is going on, in the middle of all that, this still is a sacred place. And our souls are secretly connected to the soul of the world that gives, makes us not just citizens of the world, but sacred beings in search of a greater sacredness, you could say. This is Rumi. Now is the time to know that all you do is sacred. Now, why not consider a lasting truce between you and the divine? Now is the time to understand that all your ideas of right and wrong were just a child's training wheels to be laid aside when you can finally live with veracity and love. Notice they put truth next to love again. Now is the time for the world to know that every thought and every action is secretly sacred, this is the time for you to deeply compute the impossibility that there is anything in this world but grace. Now is the time to know that everything you do is sacred. So that's the poet talking from that third layer. And I think that third layer is important for surviving all the turmoil that's going to continue in the second layer. You could imagine that what's happened is the second layer of disturbance has broken into the first layer. And whereas the first layer used to be back and forth, go to work, come back, say hello, say goodbye, now the second layer has broken into the first layer and the trouble stuff is up, the poison is up. So it's important to realize we're deeply connected to the sacred or we could be swallowed into the turmoil. I hope that makes sense. Um, I, I don't think it's that radical an idea. All cultures used to have that, and people used to have practices that brought everyone together and rituals that brought people together to feel the shared sense of sacredness. 
and I'm thinking we're going to have to reinvent some of those ways of being together, some of the old ritual ways. And one of the old ritual ways was to sing together. So um, I'd like to end singing, but maybe just uh, before doing that, see if there's anything anybody needs to say or a loose end that we might need to pick up uh, before heading for a conclusion. Yes. <clears throat> I think, Michael, that we had not the magnitude of evil, but a similarity of evil back in the 60s yeah. and the 70s. Yeah. And that through compassion and gratitude that was really outpouring individually with the money, uh, we, ended, we ended the evil. And I, that's, I have great hope for this if everybody... Not, it's not a checklist job. It's, it's a human job. Yeah. What can you do for another person? What can you feel for another person? How can you help another person? Could you hear all that? So I, I can't say all of it, but the idea, uh, some, some of us live through the 60s and see the similarity to now uh, when the culture was conflicted heavily. Um, and when betrayal was happening in high places, um, and when devastating wars were occurring. And, and they're really, and I know that there's a revisionist history that goes on, but those of us that went through it know that something really meaningful happened, and people came together in ways uh, of helping each other, and that's when the civil rights movements and, and, and the feminist movement, everything that we call in those historical terms, was born in that turmoil. And yes, people got hurt, and yes, people died, but actually meaningful things occurred. And we've been living off some of that for a while, and now all the same issues have come back again. So it's as if we're back in that time, and, and, and I agree with you. I think we can trust that inside ourselves are things waiting to blossom that know how to create antidote to that and find new ways of, of being together. Um, so, Thank you for that. I agree. But I think one difference for me is the 60s was primarily young people out in the street to begin with, saying, we can't take this. We insist we'll stop it. I mean, I was involved in a lot of protests. I was in jail as a result uh, of taking stances at that time. Uh, it changed my life. It was one of the best things ever happened to me because I took a stance and I knew where I was standing. I actually found myself, came to know myself by taking a stand that led to all kinds of very difficult, uh, painful things. But it was still the best thing to do because after that I knew who I was. Um, and so I think that's, those stances are required. Um, but I think what's different now is um, the baby boomers who were young at that time now have to become like elders. What, what's happened in the meantime is governments and political groups have learned to co-opt genuine responses. And I think there needs to be, it's not a matter of young people going out and changing it. I, I know they want to do it and th they will do it to one degree or another, but I really think what we didn't have back then was elders and I think we need it now. Am I making sense? I mean, I remember being in all those situations and there was hardly anyone there that knew any more than we did and we knew only what we were feeling in the moment. And now there are many of us who have been around for a while 
And I think we have to reimagine and reinvent the role of the elder um, because you can save some heartache and tragedy by having people who are wise enough to know how to take stances and how to make certain moves. Uh, but also, I think elders have a responsibility to bear the, the weight of a culture when it becomes necessary. And so I think it's an opportunity to reinvent elders as much as it is an opportunity to find an acceleration of calling. And young people can find who they are in the midst of trying to change the culture around them. That's certainly what happened to me. So thank you for bringing that up. As I said, it's all happened before. It's just that the technology has changed and, and, and the guys that people are wearing have changed and some of the severity has changed. Some of the severity has changed. Anything else that just needs to be said? Yeah. I would say one other observation. What you were talking about is that uh, in the 60s, we thought the age of Aquarius was right around the corner uh, years away. And here we are 50 years later and, and realizing that Ages take a lot more time to come around than uh, thought. All right, so we have to realize that too. In uh, the Renaissance, which was a huge period of change, radical change in European history, they had a saying, festina lente, make haste slowly. <laughs> Don't deny the urgency, it's urgent but it's not going to be fixed tomorrow. Somehow be in that tension, in that tension. So I want to thank everybody for coming out tonight. I mean, the idea is to try and come together without understanding of what might happen and to be in a context where hopefully uh, the sense of community can be there, uh, not proximity, but that we're looking for ways to be together, but also looking for ways to be fulfilled or live a meaningful life, despite and because of what's going on. You never know the effect you're going to have. Um, and it's not even that important to know the effect. It's much more important to live something fully. Um, and then, you know, but it has benefit to others. Back to Carl Jung. He said, when a person lives out what's inside themselves, it automatically benefits others and it changes the people around them. And those are the kind of changes that we're looking for. Um, the, the things that really alter culture, not power moves, but the things that are antidotes and the things that have medicine come from, from the ground up. And you, you can't create them. We've all tried. I've tried for years and years to create things. And then what happens, it just gets so bad that it starts to occur of its own. And I think we must be close to that by now. We must be close to it by now. So um, if it makes sense to you, uh, we could end singing. Um, so this song, uh, Azima, so I was, I'm working with the Dagara tribe and I'm learning a little of the language and, um, and I hear people saying Z a lot and they're pointing to the sky and saying Z. So I asked, Maldoma, my friend, uh, what does Z mean? He says, Z is a star. So I said, well, then when Azima is Earth, is the Z in Azima, what does that mean? He says, star. And I said, oh. And he said, didn't you forget? We're living on a star. And that reminded me that the word planet, nowadays a lot of people refer to the planet. And planet means wandering star. We're living on a wandering star. And here's something also about the macrocosm 
All those orbits keep going, but they all have a little wobble in them. That's why you have the extra day in the year and all that kind of stuff. You can't quite get things to come together. There's a wobble that keeps the whole world going. There's a bend. And so we're in a big wobble now. And, and things are just really wobbling. And it doesn't mean it's going to stop. It means we're going to get through the wobble. Um, and it really is the opportunity to find out more genuinely who we each are. I really love this idea that in trouble there's an acceleration of calling. I tell that to young people because I will want them to understand that imagine you know, being young and entering this world now. It's much harder than when I was young. Believe me, it is. I've checked that out. Um, and young people can't help but uh, inhale and absorb the atmosphere into which they grow. So they're inhaling the despair. They're inhaling the sorrow. They're inhaling the fear and the uncertainty. And they're often acting out in order to get it out of their system. Um, and so they need to know. And I found a couple of things. One is, um, unfortunately, the common philosophy of modern life is that people are empty inside. And a lot of young people feel that way. And so the first thing I tell young people working with them is I hope you know you have genius inside you. And they go, what? And I say, everybody's born with genius. And sometimes that's all they need to hear. They go, wow, I didn't know that. It's really helpful. Um, <laughs> and then the second thing I tell them is it wobbles. If you find, if you find yourself in a bad curve, you can get out of it. Don't define yourself by that. You know, everybody deserves a second chance. And there are people in this culture, I'm sorry to say, that deserve a first chance, and they haven't gotten it yet. But everybody deserves a second chance also because mistakes are, you know, kind of the way we find the road we're supposed to get to. So back to the Z in Azima, uh, it means star. And, and it's reminding everybody we're living on a wandering star. We're born of the stars. We're tied to the stars. And we can express our gratitude to the star called Earth. And the, in the tribe, the Earth people, they have um, 18 to 20% of the tribe are pe people dedicated to the Earth. And they're the ones that bring everybody together and welcome everybody. In other words, it, almost 20% of the tribe is supposed to be welcoming everybody all the time. We forgot that somehow. Anyway, so remember how it goes? It's just Azima, whoa. <clears throat> not hard. And you don't, you know, this isn't, and it's not like uh, American Idol or anything. <laughs> All voices count. Volume, not accuracy. <clears throat>
Thank you for singing. Thank you for being interested in the soul and the world. Thank you for coming out. Thank you for bringing your genius to the world. Please bring it further out. Um, and um, remember that third layer. Make sure you're finding some love and some joy because the rest of the time for a while is going to be hard. And if we don't taste some of that, we can get lost and trapped in the second layer stuff. So thank you again. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you. That's it for this episode of Speakers Forum, featuring a talk by mythologist Michael Mead. He spoke and read and sang and played his drum at Vashon Island's Open Space for Arts and Community on March 29th. Thanks for listening. Tune in again soon. <laughs>